Thank you for joining us for this discussion hosted by the Barron Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes, Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies here at The Open University, and I'm joined today by my OU colleagues, Dr. Christine Plasto and Dr. Emma-Jane Graham, both from the Department of Classical Studies. And we're delighted to welcome Professor Michael Scott from the University of Warwick for a discussion on the topic of walls and boundaries in religious spaces. Michael, I want to talk to you about the Sanctuary of Eleusis, which you've been working on. But before we go to Eleusis, can you introduce us to the concept of the temenos or boundary of Greek sanctuaries? Uh, every sanctuary had to have a definition to where its boundaries were. It had to know when the sacred space of the sanctuary ended and everything else outside it began. And the word temenos comes from the Greek meaning to cut. Right? So actually it's a cut mark in the landscape, uh, dividing what is sanctuary sacred space from what is the space outside it. What interests me is the physical form that that temenos, that boundary, that cut mark could take. And when we look across Greek sanctuaries spread out around the Mediterranean, we find actually it could take a huge variety of physical forms. There could be nothing. Right? We know, from example, in uh, Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus, that Antigone walks into a sacred grove without even realising it, because there's nothing physical there to tell her that she's moved across the Temenos. But we know with other sanctuaries that it could be an enormously high wall, like the sanctuary of Demeter and Cora at Eleusis. It could be made up of trees, cypress trees. It could be made up of a low wall that you could easily step over if you wanted to. It could be made up just simply of small boundary marker stones placed at intervals. And so my question is, what difference does it make to the ritual experience and understanding of a particular sanctuary when the Temenos boundary could look so very different in different circumstances. And so tell us about the particular example of Eleusis. Why is this such a good place to explore boundaries and walls? Well, the Sanctuary of Demetrius and Corio de Eleusis is a great example from the perspective of the surviving archaeology, because we know, right, without hesitation or problem, that from at least the 6th century BCE onwards, the sanctuary at Eleusis was surrounded by high, high, fortress-like temenos walls that completely cut off your ability to see what was happening inside the sanctuary from outside. Um, now, compare that to most uh, Greek sanctuaries, which are in ruins, um, and uh, we might be able to see you know, that there was some kind of boundary, but it's often very hard for us to know how high that boundary was in terms of, our, in terms of the archaeology. So Eleusis is a great case study because both from the literary sources and from the surviving archaeological evidence, we know for certain that we're dealing with an extremely high boundary wall that cut off visual access to what was inside. And how did that affect the experience of people who were going to Eleusis? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why people went there. So famously, the sanctuary of Demeter and Cora at Eleusis was the home of the mystery cult of Demeter. Right? So a mystery cult meant that you had to be initiated into it to be able to partake in it, right? Not just anyone could rock up. Right? And so that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That the walls are really high and they cut off visual access to uh, the inside of the sanctuary when the cult that went on there was a mystery cult that was a secret initiation that only those who were going to be initiated could partake in. Um, and for me, what I've been interested in is trying to think about how those high walls 
impacted on the ritual experience of the initiates as they moved inside uh, to take part in that initiation. We know that it happened also at night. Uh, with, it's in September time in the Athenian calendar month of Boadromion. And over the course of one or two nights, they took part in a series of rituals inside, wrapped around, inside the sanctuary, wrapped around by these high Temenos walls um, that uh, revealed something to them about the nature of uh, the goddess Demeter. And overwhelmingly, what the sources tell us is that that was supposed to be a highly charged emotional experience. So my interest is on how the walls helped create, foster, intensify, augment that emotional experience. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to Eleusis later, but for now I want to move momentarily on to Christine, who works on forensic oratory and law. And these are themes that listeners might not immediately associate with the topic of religious architecture. But Christine, how are walls and boundaries relevant to your topic? Well, I've been researching um, particularly homicide trials in classical Athens. Um, And homicide was uh, a crime that obviously had legal implications, but also had religious implications for the Greeks. So when someone had committed homicide, they became religiously polluted. Uh, And this meant that they were affected in various ways, but particularly in Athens, they were not allowed to enter certain spaces. Um, So there's quite a lot of ways in which boundaries, um, and temple boundaries in particular, are relevant to this topic. The first one that I've been interested in in my research is... The fact that three of the courts that were used to try different kinds of homicide cases were apparently located at temples. Now, I want to know, and I don't think anyone can answer this question because we we don't have the archaeological evidence, were they inside the temple boundary or outside of it? It seems illogical that it would be inside the temple boundary because you're trying people who are religiously polluted, who are forbidden from entering into the temple. But then on the other hand, people who were accused of homicide were forbidden from entering the law courts until they went on trial. So perhaps they were allowed to enter a temple precinct law court if it was for their trial. Who knows? Um, Was there any danger of them polluting the temple if they were inside? Would it have the same meaning if it was outside of the temple boundary? So these are a lot of the questions that I've found interesting um, around this idea of these, the temple at the Delphinion, the temple at the Palladion, you know, where were the law courts that the homicide was tried at? There's also an interesting question about a weird case um, in terms of how homicide was tried, which Demosthenes describes the court at Friato. And this was a court, if you can call it a court, that was used to try... Um, people who had already committed homicide and were in exile from Athens, uh, but who committed another homicide against an Athenian citizen and had to be tried for that. So they couldn't re-enter Athens. They had to stay outside of a different kind of boundary, the boundary of Athens itself, again, in part because they were polluted, I think. Obviously, there's the social sanction of being exiled as well, but there's certainly something to be said for allowing a polluted person freedom of movement within your city limits. Um, So the way that they were apparently tried was that they stood on a ship off the coast um, and the court convened on the shore and tried them from there. Now, whether this actually happened in practice ever, who knows? We only get one or two descriptions of it in the ancient sources, and it doesn't sound particularly practical, um, especially as the Athenians also believed that 
if you went on a ship and you were polluted, it would sink. So how does that work? But that's just another way that sort of you get interesting things with boundaries um, and people who are polluted. Now, people aren't only polluted as a result of homicide, of course. Um, other crimes of impiety and also everyday activities can cause pollution, like childbirth, for example. Um, so there were all kinds of boundaries you couldn't cross if you were polluted. The agora boundary is one of them, where you have the boundary markers that mark out the edge of the marketplace, and you can't enter that space if you've been accused of homicide or if you're polluted in some other way. How do you get unpolluted? Were there special ritual actions that you could take, like washing your hands or something like that? Yeah, there were certainly purification rituals. Um, and it's, it's not really clear whether all kinds of pollution could actually be purified. It seems in some of the sources that some kinds of homicide really could only be purified, in a sense, by executing the person who had committed the crime. Um, you see that in action in the so-called trials at the Prytaneum, which were trials of animals or inanimate objects that had committed homicide. Um, so, for example, if a roof tile fell off a roof and hit someone on the head and killed them, that roof tile had to be tried in a ritual way because it was polluted, um, and it could then be exiled from Athens by throwing it over the, over the boundary of Athens. So um, you certainly could remove pollution through various rituals, cleansing rituals, um, but also it was a very serious thing that could become attached to objects, animals, as well as people. Moving to the Roman world now, EJ, you've just completed a book about Roman religion, and I know that you've written about sanctuaries and architecture. So can you tell us about walls and boundaries in Roman temples? Are there any notable similarities or differences from the ones that we find in Greece? Well, most textbooks will tell you that Roman sanctuaries had Temenos walls, but they're much scarcer in the archaeological record than I think that implies, certainly for the sort of middle and late republic, uh, which is the period I've tended to work on, and certainly also for um, kind of non-urban settings. So, in fact, many of the big monumental temples that were built in uh, the late republic, sort of in the area of, of Latium, around Rome, tend to sit in elevated positions, and they seem to have different ways of using boundaries, and sometimes it's just the sheer physicality of the complex itself uh, the way it sort of demarcates a location that seems to sort of set a, a boundary. It doesn't necessarily have a wall around it, but in other cases there are examples where you have walls. So on the one hand, you've got somewhere like the Temple of uh, Juno Gabina at Gabi, which built around 160-150 BCE, and that does have a very clear Temenos wall built around it with gateways into it. And what's interesting there is that the wall is used to enclose and, um, uh, and sort of keep out existing structures. So on the western side you've got a shrine to Fortuna that is left outside the walls and then on the eastern side the wall actually diverts to incorporate some kind of existing shrine to perhaps an unknown deity within the uh, the, the, the temenos itself of, of the sanctuary and both of those shrines are located by gateways. So they, there's a kind of something going on there with the use of those walls to demarcate the space but also to say something about what's in and what's out or to encourage you to think about the past and the present as you're moving in and out of them. And then you've got somewhere on the other hand like the sanctuary of um, Fortuna Plumigenia at Plinesta which was built um, a tiny little bit later possibly around the, the turn of the first century BCE and there I don't think anyone 
entering the sanctuary via means of the, the massive access ramps that are out the front of it or the, the um, steps that run up to it, um, I don't think they would have necessarily had the same sense of crossing over a single boundary as you would at Gabi, where you sort of walk, literally walk through a door in the wall. Here it's much more a case of going up a series of, um, of terraces, a sort of more gradual movement from one part of the world into, uh, into the sanctuary itself. And that was also a movement you definitely feel in your body as you're clambering up all of these stairs. So you've got two temples, two sanctuaries built similar sorts of times, but actually very, very different in terms of architecture and the way in which they're marking out their boundaries. Yeah, that's a very good point. So space can be divided horizontally as well as vertically and in all kinds of other ways as well. Now, one thing I've been wondering about as you talk, do we ever get boundaries marked in a perhaps less permanent way by movable objects, things like votive offerings? We do. And again, um, in the particular period that I've been interested in, sort of the, the, the middle and late Republic of Italy, um, more rural sanctuaries or, or sites that are um, out in the countryside often have, or we have to assume, had more temporary or more ephemeral, perhaps is a better word, um, boundary markers. Um, so you might have a spring, for example, that you know there's no obvious wall around it, but something must have marked it out. And one example that springs to mind um, would be um, in um, uh, Lucas Pizarensis, which is near modern Pesaro, um, where in the 18th century an antiquarian found um, a pile of uh, votive offerings, terracotta uh, anatomical offerings and animals and so on, but also a number of um, chippies, so these sort of small stones that are carved within an inscription. And those inscriptions named about 12, uh, 12 gods, 12 deities, uh, including Apollo, Salus, Juno, Feronia, Marta Matuta, so there's a sort of mix there of uh, traditional Italic gods and other um, Roman and, and wider Mediterranean gods. And they were probably carved around the, the sort of early 2nd century BCE. And the usual interpretation of those is that they marked out the sacred area. And that sacred area is sometimes assumed to be a sacred grove, but it seems more likely it was actually a spring. And I think those kinds of boundaries are interesting because they, I think, well, they make me think of lots of things like, you know, you don't need a wall to mark out a space um, unless you particularly want that wall to do something or to say something. So the sorts of things that Michael is talking about, about you know, elusis, the, the walls are really integral to that experience. But if that's not the experience you want to create, then you don't necessarily need a wall. Um, but also that they, these kind of boundaries can be permeable and you can move in and out of them. And if you've got boundary stones, perhaps there are choices to be made about which ones you walk between when you're going in and out. And maybe that is linked to the deities that are carved on them and, um, and so on. So I think there's, it makes me think that boundaries require some kind of knowledge. So some kind of knowledge perhaps of just where the boundary is, but also how to interact with that boundary. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting thing. I think it makes us, um, it, I think it takes us away from thinking that religious or sacred space is a, is a fixed thing that it's it's in the landscape and everyone knows it's there but it's actually a bit more you, you, you interact with it in a in a slightly more I was gonna say thinky way but that's not really a, that's not really a very academic way of saying it but think about it in a bit more of a um, knowledgeable way let me remind you that you're listening to an audio from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion and we're talking today about religious spaces and particularly walls and boundaries 
If you go to the National Mall in Washington, D.C., you'll find a stunning black wall that's carved into the ground. It's the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and it's one of the most visited sites in the United States. It attracts all kinds of visitors, including veterans and the families of those who died in the war in Vietnam. And many people leave objects at the wall, all manner of things, from teddy bears and jewellery to mobile phones and Christmas decorations. Christian Haas is Associate Professor of American Culture at the University of Michigan, and she's the author of Carried to the Wall, American Memory and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. I asked her about the design of the memorial, and in particular, why the form of a wall had been chosen. Um, the, the basic story is that it, it was an open competition. There was a professor who was teaching a class in funerary architecture to undergraduates at Yale University. They were studying the World War I memorials built by British and French in France, which were walls of names. Tom LeCour has written about them as veils of names. But one of the requirements of the course at Yale was to submit a design for this competition. And to the surprise of everybody, um, a student won a 19-year-old Chinese-American woman named Maya Lin. She actually, the story goes, got the call while she was in a dorm. Come get the phone, you know, you won this competition. Um, and she, so she, she was in part responding to the call for the design, which required that all of the names of those who were killed in action, missing in action, and held as prisoner of war be included in the memorial somehow. So that was a requirement of the design. And then she was studying these beautiful and heartbreaking high white lists of names in the French countryside and decided to revert that impulse and to bury the names. So she, the wall, the wall is in part a vehicle for the names, um, and I think it's meant to be uh, to feel like a kind of permeable boundary between the living and the dead. So they're black reflective granite panels that are laid into the ground. They're carved at the at the center of the memorial, when you stand facing the names, you're literally standing six feet underground. Well, actually, you're 12 feet underground, so your head is six feet underground, but you are kind of metaphorically buried with the dead. And um, she wanted, the designer wanted people to see themselves reflected in the wall. So it's highly reflective granite so the people standing at the base can see the names they can see themselves but also depending on where they're standing they can either see the Lincoln Memorial reflected in the wall or the Washington Monument so it's a kind of series of contexts that she was trying to evoke with the wall and she really wanted people to touch the wall it was very important that the names be um, carved into the wall in such a way that people could take etchings, uh, rubbings, and that people could really feel the name, that there would be a tactile contact with the wall. 
So, um, so I think, I think that was her thinking about the, the wall as not as a, not as a limiting factor, but as kind of marking what she saw as a semi-permeable boundary. And people have really responded that some of the names have had to be replaced because they've been rubbed so much. And people really do touch the memorial and they really do interact with it. And I think that, although it's really hard to know, I think that people bring the objects, their precious relics, in part because they were invited to interact with the wall, with this reflective quality and with the... Um, with the tactile element of the rubbings. So this wall is obviously from a different historical context and a different kind of space, but I'd love to know what connections you draw with your own material. Any immediate similarities or differences or ways this makes you think differently about your ancient Greek walls, Michael? I think one of the things that really struck me in that uh, report about uh, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is the way that it's dug into the ground. The fact that when you are faced with the wall, you are 12 feet underground and you are cut off. Your visual sight of the real world, the normal world, is completely removed. Um, and that struck a chord with a lot of the things I've been saying this afternoon in terms of how the mystery cult happened at Eleusis, that the crucial fact impact of those high walls was to cut off people's sense of the outside world and to give them a sense that this was a unique experience within a unique uh, special enclosed environment i think what i got from kristen's kind of discussion was that when people go down underground to confront the memorial they are putting themselves within a space that is cut off from the outside world and thus encourages them to focus and pay attention to the memorial in front of them. The other thing that I thought was very interesting is about the tactile nature of the wall. I can't think of another monument that in the current modern world you are invited to interact with, touch. We think about monuments often as things we're supposed to respect and stand back from and stand away from. And there are guards watching us to make sure we don't touch and interact. Uh, and, and so I think that makes the Vietnam Veterans Memorial such an incredibly different kind of experience that people could have with that particular monument compared to anything else that they will get anywhere else in their, in their daily life. And again, I, that reflects to me on um, the work I'm doing with the Mystery Calls of the Lucis in terms of how very unusual an experience going through the mysteries of Eleusis really was, um, particularly given that, that you couldn't see the sanctuary before you went in, you had to be initiated, there was no normal sacrifice, everything was built around the discovery of sacred objects. Um, because it was unusual, it was, as a result, memorable. Well, for me, it actually makes me think of another underground space, picking up what Michael was saying, um, and that's the cave walls um, of a cave at Pantanacci, which is just outside uh, the Latin city of Lanuvium, where in the sort of 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE, people went and gave votive offerings, and they left 
the sort of typical terracotta offerings we expect of that period of anatomical parts, and um, but also a, a large number of very small ceramic vessels. But what they do in that cave, which is quite interesting, is they don't just leave them there. In many cases, they put them into niches that have been cut into the wall. So they're kind of literally embedding parts of themselves into the wall. And that kind of reminds me a little bit of this sort of um, people seeing themselves in the Washington wall that Christian was talking about. And it's quite different, of course. Um, but you, you could go into that cave and you, you might see parts of yourself or at least parts of the local community, or you know, especially when you've got terracotta heads you know, looking back at you. And in some ways that might be a sort of mimicking of the sort of hanging of votives on walls that we know we get in certain Greek temples and may have happened in, um, in Roman temples as well. Um, but you also get other things going on in that cave where sometimes these offerings are being placed right close to the wall where the natural spring water comes out of the wall and will then flow over them. Or if you leave a little cup, it might fill up gradually with um, water over time. So there's some kind of, what's going on in that cave seems to be some kind of attempt to create some kind of physical connection with a rock wall. And again, it's this sort of tangible, tactile sort of connection, um, penetrating the walls, or at least um, sort of trying to, to uh, have some kind of direct engagement with them rather than just looking at them or having them shape the space that you're in. One thing that Kristen mentioned later in our chat was about how the objects get cleared away from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. People come in twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, and they take away everything that's accumulated there. And that almost seems to be a desire to get back to this kind of original, static, stable form of the architectural wall, whereas at Pantanachi that probably didn't happen then. No, that's one of the wonderful things about Pantanachi and the cave there is that it's one of those rare cases where we find votives that have been put in place and they're still in situ when they're, they're found. They haven't been cleared away. Um, so what we actually see there is a kind of layering up of interactions. And another interesting thing that the people seem to do in that cave is sometimes insert one votive into another and smooth it over with some clay or some soil. So they're, they're, they're creating kind of layers of, of, of interaction and historical um, layers, whereas in other sanctuaries, quite often you're getting that same clearing away and things are getting dumped into pits and that's how we how we find them so we lose though that um that kind of deeper process of by by which people are actually engaging with the things that other people have left behind um which i guess is the same in in washington when you go first thing in the morning perhaps there's nothing else there but by the time you get to lunchtime there are there are other things there and that might change change people's experiences of it i suppose Christine, what did you think? Well, I, what I found really interesting was this idea of uh, the wall as being permeable or not permeable. And the idea that perhaps when you're viewing it, you're sort of both crossing and not crossing the boundary. Um, you're clearly moving in a downwards direction. You're going down into, in some ways, this space occupied by the dead to view the dead's names below the surface of the ground. But at the same time, I would imagine that viewing the wall, one is aware of its solidity um, and of the fact that the people can't come back through this wall, if, if you like. They've passed into, a, into another realm or, or whatever you want. So you, you can, in some ways, cross into a space that is 
emblematic of the space that they now occupy, but at another time, at the same time, you're made aware that you cannot occupy that same space if you're still alive. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about, which is, I suppose, more about monuments than about walls uh, and about memorials, is how the physical nature of inscribing names on a wall or any other kind of monument where names are actually inscribed in stone is really helpful and interesting in the way it shows scope and scale uh, of people who, for example, have died in a conflict, like with this memorial. Um, and it made me think of, a, this is a personal experience, which is perhaps relevant in terms of ideas of touching and for seeing scale. The Scottish War Memorial in Edinburgh Castle, um, some of the names are on the walls, but most of the names are in books that you can flip through and find the names. Um, my great uncle's name is in one of those books, who obviously I never knew he died in the Second World War. But it's interesting because every time I go to Edinburgh Castle, I go there to see his name and to touch his name in the book, which is an interesting thing. The idea of touching a name as a way of somehow trying to communicate or, or get something from the person who is memorialised. Um, and Michael's right that it's something that at most memorials you're not able to do because they're roped off or, or even so high, you know, on a, high on a pillar that you can't touch them. So that's, that's, a real, uh, that's a really interesting experience. At this point in our audio discussions, I normally ask speakers to pick a favourite object that relates to the theme of the discussion. So today I'm going to ask you each to pick out a wall or boundary that you think is particularly resonant for the study of ancient material religion. Michael? Well, one of the things I think that's come out of this discussion that's really interesting is this, this permeability of the boundary, that it, at one and the same time it has to be a cut mark in the landscape that divides between two things and which, as we've seen in any number of ways, is simultaneously something that you can pass through and uh, kind of and which kind of makes you query and question exactly what a boundary is and when you've moved from one place to another. So the object I would pick, if we've got to stick with walls, uh, are not my kind of walls at Eleusis that are big, high, and obviously there, but move to another sanctuary, move to the sanctuary of Zeus at Olympia, home to the Olympic Games, but also from the 4th century BCE, it had a wall built around the Temenos, which was only about waist height. So we have this really odd thing that at some point in the fourth century, the people who ran the sanctuary at Olympia suddenly decided that there was a need for marking their boundary, their Temenos boundary, in a physical architectural way, but one that purposefully did not cut off vision. And even more peculiarly, as we know that there were 70 different altars at Olympia that had to be visited in order by the priests on a regular basis, and we know where some of those altars are, half the altars are inside the boundary and half the altars are outside the boundary wall. So this waist-height wall from the 4th century onwards seems to exemplify this complexity of boundaries that we've been speaking about in that you could both see over it and the ritual business of the sanctuary continually transgressed it. 
I think I would probably pick the Sacred Grove in the Sanctuary of Juno Governor at Galby, which is probably more of a boundary than technically a wall, because what it is is a, a group of uh, trees in artificial pits that have been planted on three sides of the temple, so around the two sides and around the back. And it sort of sits, I guess, as a sort of extra interior boundary, if you like, within the sanctuary. So you come through the main Temenos walls, you come through the gates, and there is the temple uh, framed by this sacred grove. So it sort of encloses the temple within another extra sort of um, uh, boundary. Now, there probably weren't huge trees, they were probably quite small, and they were replanted a couple of times, so they may not have really been particularly successful, they may have died uh, and had to be replaced, but they were obviously important enough to, to replace. And I think what I think is interesting about them is that they're sensorially quite interesting because they're a, a, a sort of interior boundary that is very different from the walls of the sanctuary with, in terms of the smells and the sights and the tastes and the sounds. So you've got, you might have insects and birds, the wind rustling the trees, but also trees can block sound in ways, in slightly different ways from um, walls as well, or they, they can distort it. So, and, and of course, it's a, it's a living boundary in that it changes quite literally through the seasons as, um, as, as, as leaves grow and fall and, and so on. Um, and it's the kind of boundary that I think invites you in and asks you questions and which you can cross um, but in certain prescribed ways because you have to move between uh, between the trees. So just again, it reminds me that boundaries can be really sort of flexible things in terms of the experiences that they can offer to you. I think my boundary is also quite a flexible one. Um, and it's actually something that something EJ said made me think about, which is the idea of going up to somewhere um, and how that can be uh, a sense of crossing a boundary. Um, and so I'm thinking about the Areopagus in Athens, which was probably uh, the most important homicide court. It's where intentional homicide against Athenian citizens was tried. Um, uh, and so it's not necessarily what we might think of as a religious space initially, although, of course, it is the hill of Ares. Um, one of the foundation myths of the Areopagus is that it's where Ares was uh, tried for murdering somebody. Um, and it's also where Orestes was apparently tried for murdering Clytemnestra by, well, with Athena as the uh, presiding magistrate. So there are clear um, religious connotations to the site, and it's apparent that there were shrines on the Areopagus as well, as it being this civic space where the Areopagus Council met um, and these homicide trials were tried. And it's a hill, so one has to go up to it. And Isocrates talks about that even the most... Um, wild young men who are, have no respect for anything, when they go up to the Areopagus, they're in awe of its majesty and uh, its antiquity and sort of the solemnity of the people who meet there. Um, and so we can assume that there must have been some kind of sense of a boundary there. We know that when the Areopagus Council met elsewhere in the Stoa Basileos, they met in an area that was roped off from the rest of the building. So we can assume that they were bounded in some way when they met on the Areopagus Hill as well. Um, and I think it must have been extremely imposing for somebody who had been um, accused of homicide, who had to climb up this hill to reach the court where they were going to be tried, and potentially where the judgment was going to be passed down for them to be executed for their crime. Um, and so crossing this vertical boundary up to this court must have been extremely powerful.
That brings our discussion to a close. I'd like to thank Michael Scott for joining us at the Open University to tell us about his work on walls and boundaries in ancient Greek sanctuaries. And thank you too to Emma-Jane Graham, Christine Plasto and Kristin Haas for sharing their perspectives on this topic. You can visit the website of the Barantesen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion to find links to some of the walls and places that we've been talking about today, together with a bibliography and a link to another extract from my conversation with Kristin Haas, where she talks very movingly about some of the objects left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Thank you for listening.